It's Tuesday. You know what that means. Sing along if you know the words. We're going to have a talent show soon, so uh, get ready. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Yay! Tonight, I'm gonna have myself a real good time. I feel alive. Sorry, you just can't cut off Freddie Mercury when he's in the middle of rocking your face off. You know what I'm saying? Hang on. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Nonsense 230. Starting it off with Don't Stop Me Now.
Man, I'll tell you what, I'm going to make a little nonsense the show. Confession to you as we start out episode 230 of Nonsense the Show. Um, that song is uh, it's one of those songs that anytime it comes on, I'm going to sing every word to it. And I'm going to rock my face off every single time. And I'm going to pretend I'm Freddie Mercury on stage performing in front of 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 167,000 people. Um, and as that intro happened, I just couldn't cut it off early. I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't, it just, it was not in my heart to do it. And I broke a little bit of a sweat because I was dancing and I was singing and I was just thinking about being Freddie and it's a whole thing. Welcome to Nonsense, the show episode 230. As always, I will be your host. I will be your guide through the world of nonsense, mystery, and intrigue with a little bit of music, a little bit of silliness, um, and some, uh, you know, some other bullshit thrown in there just for kicks. Uh, my name is Captain Nick. Uh, some of you know me as Nick, some of you know me as some other names. Call me Cap, call me Captain, call me Nick, call me Hey Asshole. I don't give a fuck what you call me, just support me on Patreon, patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. Every dollar helps. Um, all of your money goes directly towards funding a lifestyle that involves me not having a real job and being able to do shit like this for a living, which means creating for you on a regular basis, entertaining, informative, educational, and just really, really fucking awesome content. Um, pretty soon there's going to be video stuff going on. In fact, I'm shooting some test footage as we speak, uh, with the GoPro camera. Um, there's, there's some good things on the way. And if you support me on patreon.com backslash nonsense, the show, that stuff can happen sooner. So do with that information, what you will, a uh, special shout out as we, we begin the episode to our long time, loyal, dedicated, handsome, brave, and courageous sponsor, the fine fellas down there at Paso Wine Shine and the Tin City Distillery in Paso Robles, California. Had a little conversation with Patrick down there at Paso Wine Shine uh, about an hour before I started this show. Yeah, an hour, that's good enough for government work. Um, we were discussing some stuff, and he dropped a little bit of knowledge on me that I did not know. Turns out Paso Wine Shine and the Tin City Distillery, they are the largest distillery in the Paso Robles area. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty fantastic. Congratulations, fellas. Check out the Vodka Lemonade. That is thus far my favorite beverage, although you cannot go wrong with any of their products. And uh, listen, I can't make any official announcements yet because it's a long way off, but let's just say that a long-time dream of Captain's Curse Rum very well may become a reality for a very, very limited few of you. What's on stat? Uh, ooh, oh, hello. What's on the agenda tonight on Nonsense of the Show, episode 230, a show I am tentatively titling Bad Bitches and Navajo Witches. We're going to talk about Lucille Ball, One Bad Bitch. We're going to talk about the classic 1992 uh, uh, Mike Myers, Dana Covey, uh, Dana Covey, Dana Carvey film, Wayne's World. One of the finest soundtracks to come out of a movie in the history of ever. We're going to do a big feature on the mysterious, terrifying, and uh, really mystical Navajo Skinwalkers. Stand by for that. We're going to talk a little bit about the van plan and some ways that you can contribute. Um, I have some very specific things that I'm going to ask you people for. And I'm going to keep asking until I get it. So just stand by. If there's time, I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit about... <clears throat> a few of my comedic and creative influences. We're going to talk about what I've been watching. We're going to talk a little bit about my bi-weekly, bi-weekly? Every Wednesday and every Sunday, I do a meme dump on the Instagram. We're going to talk about that a little bit. We'll potentially talk about the last blockbuster on Netflix. And if all goes well, we'll have a brief discussion about the musical stylings of a man, a mysterious man, a mysterious creative genius of a man by the name 
of Richard Cheese. <laughs> I know, uh, after all these years, the name still fucking makes me laugh. And that's just the way it's going to be, you know? So, uh, where should we start the show off? Hmm, hmm, hmm. Um... I mean, I guess we should start off with, with, with the Queen song, with Don't Stop Me Now. That's one of those songs that, for those of you that have been longtime listeners of my content, you'll remember back in the pirate radio days, back in 2014, 2014 or so, I was living in my tiny house. It was me and Toby the Wonder Mutt living in a landscape yard, working night security to pay for our rent. And uh, I would have a couple of drinks. I would grab a little microphone, a little Zoom H4N recorder. I would set up on my little uh, kind of uncomfortable tiny house couch, and I would record a spontaneous hour's worth of content. I would have to be drunk before I started, and inevitably, if I ran out of things to say, I would just start doing really, you know, kind of bad karaoke. One of the songs I absolutely loved to sing at that time was Don't Stop Me Now by Freddie Mercury and Queen. And so, um, I don't know, it just makes me happy to play that song and to continue the tradition of me singing terribly along to it as uh, one of my podcasts progresses. Oh, oh, that sounds familiar. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to talk about one of the most legendary figures in entertainment in the history of the Americas. That's right. It's time for me to tell you about one very bad bitch, the one and the only Lucille Lucy Ball. Um, that was supposed to be the I Love Lucy theme, and it was. It was just not the version I expected. I was a little thrown off, but I adapted. I think I handled it well. I think we made the fucking thing work. Um, <laughs> you know what else I just realized? Boom. I did not have my phone on Do Not Disturb. Sip of rum for Captain Nick being an unprofessional. S-O-B. Mm. That's right, drinking out of my gold solo cup. Got me a little Captain's Rummerade 3000, um, except that the gas station across the street from me where I normally buy my Gatorade for my Captain's Rummerade 3000 uh, was out of red Gatorade. No, there's no flavor. It's a color. They were out of red. They had light blue. They had like orange. I'm not drinking fucking orange Gatorade. Fuck off. Um, and, uh, and so I had to move down the aisle, and thankfully I found some Powerade in red. <laughs> So don't worry, guys. Crisis averted. Um, Special, special shout out to Alan, the beardless wonder incredible for supplying the rum fueling tonight's creative insanity. He uh, showed up at my house uh, the other day ago. That would be on Sunday to watch a uh, AEW pro wrestling pay-per-view called Double or Nothing. Very exciting show. Very good time. Uh, really, really fun to be hanging out with Mr. Allen. Incredible watching pro wrestling with a full crowd again. Um, if you're not a wrestling fan, you won't get it. It's okay. I don't hold it against you. One of the things Allen did though, was he surprised me on the way with a gigantic bottle of Kraken rum. Kraken, 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 Kraken. Fucking mystical sea creatures in the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie. You'll know what I'm talking about. It's good rum. I mix it with some Gatorade. I put it in my red or my gold solo cup. And I drink that shit, and it gets me fucking happy-wasted just enough to do a fun show, and then I don't feel bad in the morning. And then I can still get up and walk fucking nine miles. Um, Which, you know, I'm back to my walking. Uh, Those of you that know me know I enjoy walking. I've been doing a lot of walking in the last few years. 
Uh, it started out as something I was doing for Toby because I fucking love Toby and I wanted Toby to be happy. And so I was going to do anything I could to make Toby happy. And then I started loving walks. I go early in the morning when uh, people are not out right around sunrise. Um, I injured my ankle back in uh, September. Did some nerve damage in my foot, a whole fucking thing. It's still very uncomfortable. We don't need to talk about it. I finally started walking again. I caved into the quarantine shit. I got a little chunky. I ate my feelings for a while. I'm doing better now. I got a whole plan. It's working. I'm happy. It's functional. It's sustainable. Boom. So I'm walking anywhere between 5 and 10 miles a morning. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy with it. So drinking this is nice because I can have a little party night. I can do my show. I can have a good time. Take a little walk after this. Get me a little snack as a treat because I'm chubby and that's what fucking motivates me. And uh, and then tomorrow morning I get up and I do my fucking miles and I do my penance for eating junk food late at night. You know what I mean? Yeah, me too. Okay. Um, <clears throat> sorry. I got a little distracted. Let me tell you guys about Lucille Ball. This is a story I found that I really enjoyed. This is just a snapshot. It's a peek. It's a little bit of a nibble into the life of one very, very incredible woman. Uh, Hopefully it inspires you to do some more research. As you guys know, if you're longtime listeners, um, as a child, I spent a lot of time late at night staying up and watching uh, TV Land, Nick at Night, uh, on my 13-inch color television set. I Love Lucy uh, was one of the shows that I watched a lot of. Um, I loved it. I mean, it just, it held up. Even as a little fucking kid, it held up to me. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about Lucy uh, and some shit I didn't know about her. And it really, really kind of uh, changed my opinion of her. Positive or negative, I'll leave up to you. In the late 1950s, Darwin Porter, student body president at the University of Miami, arranged Lucy and Desi Day at the school. A celebration of the country's most popular entertainers and favorite couple, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. But when he arrived to take them to the event, the snide and bickering couple he found resembled anything but America's sweethearts. Their television presence did not reflect the real-life situation in their relationship. She shouted denunciations at him at one point, calling him an ethnic slur. She accused him of having sex with two prostitutes the night before, writes Porter in his new book with Danforth, um, Danforth Price. Lucio Ball and Desi Arnaz, they weren't Lucy and Ricky Ricardo. He didn't deny that, but claimed, It doesn't mean a thing, my fooling around with some hookers. Peccadillos don't count. Uh, the book, which is volume one of the author's Ball Arnaz bio, is 576 pages long and covers the years until the end of their marriage, documenting their careers, hardships, and many, many lovers in all their gossipy glory. Volume 2 is set for release later this year. So uh, this whole story comes basically based on this guy's book. This is what motivated the story to be written. Um, How you're going to write a two-volume biography about Lucy and Desi, uh, I don't know, but I guess they have enough gossipy glory to make it fucking worthwhile. But that's not what we're focused on today. We're focused specifically on Lucy. Ball, born August 6th, 1911 in Jamestown, New York, yearned to perform from a young age. Taking acting lessons in New York City as a teen, she was overshadowed by fellow student Betty Davis, who she found snobby and intimidating. She also studied dance under Martha Graham for several days before Graham asked her to drop the class. And a quote from Graham, You're hopeless as a dancer, Graham told her. You're like a quarterback taking up ballet. Perhaps you could find work as a soda jerk. Damn, that's some unequivocal fucking scorn from the dancing community. At the age of 14, Ball wound up in a, rela- in a relationship with 23-year-old Johnny DeVita, 
who, the authors write, ran illegal booze in from Canada and functioned as the town gigolo. So, not the most savory of characters. 14 years old, dating a 23-year-old, and this guy was a fucking scumbag, quite frankly. She later moved in with DeVita, who occasionally beat her, and shaped parts of her personality around his gangster ways. Living with DeVita catalyzed some personality changes in her, the authors write. She developed a foul mouth to match his own and those of his hoodlum friends. I mean, of course, you're going to become your environment, and if you're around a bunch of people using foul language and colorful turns of phrase, that's going to infect your speech and your vocabulary as well. Later, while auditioning for roles in Times Square under the stage names Montana Ball and Diane Belmont, before eventually settling on her given name, she scrounged to survive, uh, including partaking in nude modeling and occasionally turning a trick or two. She often ate food left over by diners in local cafes and brought a handbag with a plastic liner on dates so she could take home half-eaten steaks. Uh, I guess this is the days before doggy bags. She was briefly cast in the popular theatrical review The Siegfried Follies, but was fired after two weeks because she was told, you've got no tits and you can't dance. So she got kicked out of dancing school, told to be a soda jerk, and then when she finally gets a job, she gets kicked out because she's, hey, you got no tits and you can't do I tried to dance and the fucking lady wouldn't let me dance. I just want to dance and perform. Come on. Distraught, she briefly considered a life as a gun mall for DeVita, thinking I could join Johnny on his liquor runs down from Canada with the police chasing after us. So all of a sudden her performing dreams feel like they're dashed, and she thinks, well, the only real good option for me is to join in with my scumbag boyfriend and just carry a gun and help him run from the cops and run his fucking drugs and shit. Alcohol, not drugs. Liquor runs. She eventually found work as a model, though. And uh, as she sought acting roles, she received advice from Leela Rogers, mother of her good friend, Ginger Rogers, who you may have heard of, um, that she would later follow. And, and in the perspective of our times now, it's, it's kind of shocking, but, well, I'm sure it was shocking then too, but for a long time, unfortunately, this was the norm. Uh, Leela Rogers' advice went something like this. If you want to be a star within two years, get auditioned on the casting couch, Leela told her. That's the advice I gave my own daughter. I don't know why she had that voice. I just feel like she smoked a lot of cigarettes and sounded pretty grisly. So this lady basically told her, like, hey, I told my daughter the same thing. Get on the casting couch, let these gross people fuck you, and then they'll cast you in everything you want. Becoming one of Manhattan's most popular models, Ball was a regular at hot nightclubs like the Cotton Club. She dated Albert Cubby Broccoli, who would later go on to produce the James Bond films, uh, and then eventually spent time with his cousin, Pat DiCiccio. Um, and Albert Broccoli, uh, Cubby Broccoli, the Broccoli family are an interesting one. They're, they're probably going to get a feature on nonsense in the future because their control over the James Bond franchise is absolute. Um, that would be, I think, a fun story to tell. Uh, DeChicho, a rumored associate of Lucky Luciano, a very, very famous gangster, would later marry a film star, Thelma Todd, and then eventually heiress Gloria Vanderbilt, uh, mother, of course, to Anderson Cooper. Uh, Ball told friends at the time that she had hoped to marry him and confided to actress Joan Blondell, Pat taught me tricks in bed I think he learned in a brothel in Shanghai. But her association with gangsters almost had dire consequences. It wasn't all fun and games. Dancing in Harlem one night, she suddenly sensed danger. She had a feeling. So she grabbed a friend's hand and immediately ran from the club. 
Turns out the man that set off that feeling, the man she was afraid of, wound up gunning a man down right there in that club shortly after she left. While staying at Manhattan's Kimberly Hotel, she was taking a bath one night and, quote, while she was soaking in the tub, she was fired upon and the bathtub was riddled with bullets. The authors write, miraculously, she escaped injury, but the room downstairs was flooded. (laughs) After being cast in the 1933 Eddie Cantor film, The Roman Scandals, Ball moved to Hollywood. She would appear in over 50 films that decade, often in small, uncredited, or barely their roles, before finding favor as a reliably comedic bit player. By the end of 1934, a casting drought led Ball to Columbia Pictures head Harry Kahn. She'd been told that Kahn was ruthless, self-centered, and mean-spirited, and that every female under contract to him had to submit to him sexually. Uh, He reportedly once told comedian Red Skelton, I'm entitled to the broads because I have them under contract. Weirdly, same voice as Leela Rogers. Go figure. Uh, For Ball, uh, she didn't really put much thought into it morally or ethically. It was was just a matter of practicality. I've resisted so far, but other gals like Joan Crawford, they did all right, Uh, Ball told a friend. At a party one night, I uh, I heard her tell some people that the casting couch was better than the cold, hard floor. So at the time, it was just kind of an accepted evil, an, a necessary evil in order to succeed in that business for a woman. You had to go through with this, this disgusting ritual in order to get the parts that would earn you the money and the fame and the success that would get you away from that. After sleeping with Khan, Ball began to get cast in better movies. But her career still evolved slowly as she was repeatedly told by casting agents and others that she had no talent for acting. And she was not large-breasted enough to become a sex symbol. So again, here comes these comments on her body and her sexuality. How she's not enough. How she doesn't fit the mold. Uh, She soon signed with RKO Pictures after her release from Columbia. But at RKO, she constantly lost parts to rival and future pinup superstar Betty Grable. So Lucille Ball is touching, uh, she's rubbing shoulders, touching elbows, with a lot of really, uh, a lot of other really famous and successful women of her day. Um, she's, she's right up there in the league with the other legends of her time. <clears throat> but of course, all of these, these events, all of these losing parts and so on and so forth, it, it caused her to make a couple of key changes in her life. To distinguish herself from the blonde actress, she dyed her hair red for the first time. Others believe this was also when she began taking her craft just a bit more seriously. It was because of Grable that Lucille quit yawning her way through the picture and did some real acting, said Kay Harvey, uh, an actress and model of the time. So essentially kind of the attitude was Lucille was kind of just coasting her way through, just hoping for the best. And when she started really getting this stiff competition and losing out on roles, she finally got serious. She made a change to set herself apart and she started putting the work in. Over the coming years, Ball began distinguishing herself on film for her talent with a wisecrack. Personally, meanwhile, uh, she dated the likes of Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, Orson Welles, and Milton Berle, who was the first person to talk to her about the potential of television. So again, we come to a point where she's rubbing, well, not necessarily elbows, but other things, uh, with some very famous, powerful uh, movers and shakers of the time. Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, Orson Welles, and Milton Berle are all names that I would reckon most people still know today, even if they don't know much more than that. They'll definitely recognize those names. Um, certainly, you know, these are names that are familiar to me and, and my uh, entertainment time. After co-starring in a surprise 1939 hit called Five Came Back, 
She was approached about the film adaptation of a Broadway play called Too Many Girls. It was here that she first set eyes on the play's 22-year-old lead, Desi Arnaz, who had already enjoyed flings with Grable, Rogers, and superstar Carmen Miranda. So once again, her love interest running in some pretty exclusive circles and uh, rubbing some things that are not elbows with some, some big names. As she later confessed, she could not take her eyes off Desi after he walked onto the stage. She later wrote about his broad shoulders and chest, his narrow hips and tight football pants, and how he swayed to the catchy rhythms of the bongo drums. The two wouldn't officially meet until 1940 at RKO Pictures. The next day, Arnaz moved in with her. Arnaz. Not Arnaz. Arnaz. Desi Arnaz. So the day after they officially meet, they move in together. Talk about moving fucking quick. Their love story would be filled with affairs, animosity, brutal arguments, and finally, incredible success. After both flaming out in the movies, a shift to television made them superstars. I Love Lucy ran from 1951 to 1957 and became the most watched show in the country. And the studio they founded, Desilu, was a top producer in the new medium. By 1957, the couple would even own what was left of RKO Pictures. As the show's popularity finally began to wane in the late 1950s, the couple aired a diminished version titled the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour. Both the show and the couple's marriage ended in 1960. I remember both shows. Obviously, I Love Lucy was much more prominent, much more of a favorite, but I do remember the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour as well. And if I remember correctly, the big difference between the two that I remembered as a kid was that the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour, um, by the late 1950s, that was airing in color. Pretty big fucking deal. But given their shared roving eye, perhaps the most surprising aspect of their story is that they stayed together as long as they did. Marriage is okay, but adultery is more fun, said Arnez. Just ask Lucy. What a fucking quote, huh? <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, 26 minutes, 22 seconds into the show. Uh, that's Lucy, uh, Lucille Ball, Lucy Lucille Ball, the hallucinator herself. That is one bad bitch. She's got a, a hell of a fucking story. That's only scratching the surface. That's just giving you a couple of highlights, a little taste of the action. Um, before we go any further, I'm going to take a break to sip some rum, stand up, stretch my legs a little bit. You guys are going to listen to Tia Carrera, and she's going to sing to you about a ballroom blitz.
Ballroom Blitz. You know how every once in a while you find a song and it just fucking hits with you and you just go, I'm going to listen to this song repeatedly for the next six weeks until I hate it. Yeah, I'm in about week four with that song. I'm still in the sweet spot, right in the freaking pocket. Love that song. Um, all right, before we get uh, get going any further here, let me just uh, check some things off my list. Got my red pen going here. We talked about Patreon. We talked about Paso Wine Shine, my friend Patrick, his incredible distillery, the booze they make, the happy memories they create. We talked about Alan Incredible donating a bottle of rum to the cause and how it's fueling the show tonight. We listened to Ballroom Blitz. We listened to Don't Stop now we talked a little bit about lucy uh <laughs> lucille ball um let me tell you a little bit about what i've been watching lately you guys ready for this every week i like to give you guys a little taste into what i'm doing with my recreational time when i'm sitting there uh procrastinating on my writing work or uh you know whatever else i'm doing um i like to watch a lot of shit and i like to share it with you in the hopes that you'll find something that you enjoy um, this week, I want to mention to you Hot Ones with Sean Evans. Um, I think it's under the YouTube channel First We Feast. If you just search for Hot Ones, you'll definitely fucking find it. Hot Ones is a show uh, where it's hot questions and even hotter wings. Basically, Sean Evans does a shitload of research with his team. He's one of the best interviewers in the game, the most educated, the most interesting. He does kind of a unique spin on the whole process. He sits down across a table with a celebrity, and they have a series of 10 progressively hotter Hot wings. Some some of them use cauliflower because they don't eat freaking meat. Um, but the hot sauces, they have a new lineup of sauces every season. And they, they rank them from 1 to 10. Mildest to hottest. At the end, it's called the last dab. Traditionally, you put a little extra on there. Take a big old bite with Sean. And the idea is you try to answer these questions coherently and intelligently and entertainingly while you're dealing with the pain and the sweat and the snot and all the other stuff that comes along with eating incredibly painful hot wings. Highly recommend it. Um, just off the top of my head, uh, a couple of the ones that really stood out to me, Gordon Ramsay's a highlight. Halle Berry was incredible. Shia LaBeouf was great. Um, there's many, many others. Check out Hot Ones on the YouTube. Um, I think you'll enjoy it. I recently watched Spencer Confidential on Netflix. It's a Mark Wahlberg movie. Got Post Malone in there. Um, listen, it's a Mark Wahlberg movie. He plays a fucking, he plays a cop from Boston confronting corruption in law enforcement in Boston, in Southie. There's action, there's fighting, there's wise Alec remarks. Uh, Mark Wahlberg looks really serious and muscly all the time. He fights a bunch of dudes. Um, there's some good shit that happens. If you're into like a, just a cheap, fun action movie on a Sunday afternoon, Spencer Confidential, check it out. You won't be sorry. Um, I've been watching a lot of stuff on Studio Binders' YouTube channel. They're just like a filmmaker's like resource website. They give you articles. They give you information. They've got some great videos breaking down different directors' styles and cinematography and shot choices and music and all of that kind of stuff, which, you know, I'm deep into the filmmaking study right now. I'm having a great time with it, writing scripts, filming things, uh, practicing my skills, trying to develop some fucking talent so I can create some of the things that are in my head that I want to show to you guys. Studio Binder has been very helpful. If you're interested in that kind of thing, check it out. I focus a lot on Quentin Tarantino because he's one of my my favoritas. Um, Speaking of, let me just go ahead and just touch on really quickly some of my influences. Like some of, just I was recently thinking about as I was watching some of these videos, as I'm working on some of my scripts, I was talking to a couple friends um, about some creative ideas. I was thinking about who are the people that have influenced me creatively. 
Who are the people whose styles I would most like to emulate? Who are the people that at some point, if everything went perfectly in my life and I became very successful in a creative field that I would like to be compared to? And so I started thinking about just a few of the names that come to mind. Robin Williams. Who wouldn't like to be compared or mentioned alongside Robin Williams? One of the most funny, heartwarming, endearing, just kind-feeling people you've, you've encountered on screen. God bless Robin Williams, a true hero in my life. Uh, Mel Brooks. Come on. Mel fucking Brooks. I'll never forget when my mom first showed me Young Frankenstein. I'll never forget when I first watched Blazing Saddles, Space Balls, you know, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and so on and so forth. John Candy. Quentin Tarantino. Stone Cold Steve Austin. In weird ways, in unique ways, these are all people that have influenced my life in one way or another. And uh, it's, it's always interesting when you spot the little things that you do or the little things that you say or the little behaviors you have or the, the style choices you make that are based on some of these people. Um, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin, I've got a skull ring I wear all the time. It's a good luck charm. It's a comfort blanket to me at this point. Um, and the whole reason I wear it, because in 1998, I saw Stone Cold Steve Austin wear one, and he was one of the coolest people I'd ever seen in my life. Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know, he, he kind of informed a lot of my attitudes towards the world in, in some ways about understanding how and when to be a rebel, how and when to stand up for yourself, how and when to stick it to the man, dump some beer on him, kick him in the dick, and drop him down for a Stone Cold Stunner. Quentin Tarantino is all about substance and style and paying homage and stealing from those from the past, artists and creators and people who have inspired you and who have influenced you and who have impacted you. Take their shots, take their music, take their ideas, modify them, adapt them, improve them, evolve them. And then when you use them, it's not stealing, it's paying homage. Quentin Tarantino, in my opinion, is one of the most, uh, most influential, interesting, and fun directors, writers, actors, movie makers of my life. I'm grateful for him. I watch his shit regularly. I'm a big, big fucking fan. And John Candy is one of those people that every time you see him, see him in a movie, your day gets better. Um, He's got a very unique, charming, heartwarming delivery and style and substance to him. Losing him was an incredible loss for our uh, our world. Uh, God bless John Candy. And now, with that being said, let's talk a little bit about a 1992 cinematic classic. A little movie starring Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, Rob Lowe, and Tia Carrera. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about Aurora, Illinois' local sons. The fellas over there at Wayne's World, Wayne and Garth. In Aurora, Illinois, rock music music fans Wayne Campbell and Garth Algar host a public access television show called Wayne's World from Wayne's parents' basement. A broadcast of Wayne's World catches the attention of television producer Benjamin Kane, of course played by Rob Lowe, that son of a bitch. Um, and then, of course, a whole bunch of hijinks ensue where Rob Lowe buys the show from them. He tricks them into a fucking sucker's deal. He ends up trying to bogart on Wayne's lady, Tia Carrera, the incredible, impressive, absolutely intimidating rock star known as Cassandra. Um, this is one of those movies that you don't really think about it all that often, but it's incredibly influential, not only in the comedy movie world, not only in the, the, the movie world in general as far as that era, um, but also just in, in kind of our common lexicon. Let's get into a little bit of it. Um, there's something very, very attractive about this movie, and especially in the early scenes where you, you're kind of establishing who Wayne and Garth are. They're minor celebrities in Aurora, Illinois, and Chicago. 
um, they're minor celebrities in their little corner of the world, in their little segment of that corner of the world. And that kind of feels like the perfect kind of famous to be. Like the places you go to regularly, people know who you are enough to go like, hey, what's up, dude? Maybe they buy you a beer. Maybe they buy you a taco. Otherwise, they like fist bump you, give you a quick conversation, and then you're on your way. That kind of feels perfect. I just thought about that as I was watching today. Special shout out to Dana Carvey. I just love Dana Carvey. I love everything about him. He, he makes me laugh. He makes me smile every time. There's something very, very special about him. God bless Dana fucking Carvey. Um, there's, I'm, I'm playing with different formats for the Captain's Film Institute entries. So tonight what I did was I kind of just as I was watching the movie, um, I separated things into categories as I noticed them. Classic lines, classic scenes, pop culture influence, personal things that I you know kind of noticed, childhood crush. Uh, captain's notes, blah, 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 gadgets, classic gags, cameos, that kind of thing. Let's go through a few of them, huh? You guys know the storyline of this movie. They have their show. It gets bought. There's a rock star. There's a whole bunch of shit that happens. Um, they have some money. Then they don't have any money. Then they have to get their show back. Then they have to save the day. It's a lot of fun. It's really funny. A lot of classic lines. A lot of lines from this movie are still quotable to this day. Still things I catch myself saying relatively regularly that other people don't ever register. And then that makes me feel silly. But I still quote him because I just can't help it. Um, one of the most classic lines that I remember as a kid quoting a lot because it was one of the funniest things I had ever heard when I was, you know, eight to ten years old. Um, it might happen. Huh, yeah. And monkeys might fly out of my butt. Just the visual of monkeys flying out of your butt is pretty, pretty fucking great. Um, if you're going to spew, spew into this while he holds out a little tiny ketchup cup. I used that line a lot in college when people had been drinking too much. Um, talking about the Stratocaster, the Fender Stratocaster, blah, 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 with a whammy bar. It will be mine. Oh, yes. It will be mine. I use that phrase regularly, particularly when talking about a 1965 Lincoln Continental with suicide doors, convertible top, and those little diplomatic flag holders up on the hood. Um, because if you're going to have a car like that, you want to make it stand out a little bit. And I've only seen a couple in the wild, and none of them had diplomatic flag holders. Uh, classic lines. Classic lines. Okay, no more of those listed. That's good. We got through those pretty quick. Let's talk about the pop culture influence of the film Wayne's World right after I take a sip of rum. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Bueller. What? No. Bueller. No, 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 no. This is not the fucking time for this Bueller. shit. This is not the time. Wow! Come on. Wow! Come on. Wow! I fucking hate All this I can shit. Say is wow. Knock it off. Bogus. Okay. You know what? 39 minutes into the show, I forgot to introduce my co hosts, uh, my producers, the intruders on Nonsense, the show, the ghosts that live in my computer. I moved into Broadway Manor not knowing it was haunted, although I did suspect it. Turns out the ghosts are friendly. They're a little bit mischievous. Uh, they just like to fuck with me by infecting my computer and using my soundboard to interrupt the show. Well, no shit. Okay, thank you. Did you get it out of your fucking system? Are you done? <laughs> okay, I didn't want you to laugh. I just want to know if you're done. Will you let me get on with the fucking show? You bet your ass. Thank you. Nice to have you here. Please be quiet. <laughs> this is a movie that's filled with pop cultural references. Scooby-Doo, famous bands, famous movies, kung fu movies, so on and so forth. Um, the sketches and the film, Saturday Night Live, of course, is where this, uh, this, this, this idea originated. Um, I didn't realize originally that this film was responsible for some really, really famous catchphrases. I didn't know this was where they became popular. 
Um, obviously, Schwing. Everybody knows Schwing. Yeah. That was one that was real famous in the late 90s, uh, early 90s, late 90s. I don't know how famous it is now. I don't think people really know it now. Um, although some things that people think are attributed to a guy called Michael Scott, like that's what she said. No, no, no. Michael Scott stole that from fucking uh, Wayne Campbell. That was Wayne Campbell first. Party on. Party on was another one that was not used in common lexicon until fucking Wayne's world. And, of course, the ever so famous, hey, nice haircut. Not. Apparently not came from Wayne's world as well. I didn't know that until I started this. One of my favorite little features of a movie like this, and, and, and it's something that I find a lot of movies that I'd gravitate towards have this, this little feature. Wayne's world is a movie that many, many times throughout the film breaks the fourth wall. Either Wayne or Garth or, uh, Garth or another character who quickly gets rectified will, will talk directly to the camera explaining something, giving some exposition. I don't know why. I just fucking love when they do that. It's just a great little comedic, uh, comedic move. Let's talk for a minute though. Hang on. Before we talk about this, I need to prepare, uh, <laughs> I need to prepare a song, which I should have had ready. Um, here it is. Don't worry. Oh, come on. Hang on. Hang on. There it is. Oh. Dreamweaver. Let's talk for a minute about Tia Carrera. Watching this movie, every single time I'm reminded of the fact that Tia Carrera was one of my earliest, most intense childhood celebrity crushes. Tia Carrera as Cassandra, um, for me in the 90s as a young boy entering his formative years, becoming a man, she was, well, to put it succinctly, showing. <laughs> Her rocking out on stage at the Gasworks is seared into my memory as a sexual powerhouse maneuver. This incredible badass ass-kicking woman up there rocking everybody's face off the center of attention, confident as all get out, doesn't need shit from anybody. She's going to beat dudes up when they fucking spill a drink on her. What's not to love? Incredible tight outfits in bright, dazzling colors. The white leather with the short shorts and the thigh highs and the little members-only jacket cut off at the midriff. How about that blue lace number with the blue leather pants? Or let's talk about the end during the ballroom blitz scene where she's wearing that red dress. Come on! That still inspires some fucking phenomenal things in me, which we don't need to go into uh, because you guys fucking understand and I don't want to gross anybody out. Suffice to say, dang, it's an iconic performance. The outfit, the environment, the voice, and her whole demeanor scream rock and roll badass. And interesting, interestingly enough, she turned down a role in Baywatch in order to take... Uh, the spot in this movie so uh, shout out to Tia Carrera sip a rum I fucking love you give me a call uh, let's let's grab some tacos you know mm. alright thanks for that that was Dreamweaver um, bunch of classic scenes pulling up alongside the Rolls Royce pardon me do you have any great poupon who didn't do that as a kid several times to the annoyance of some random adult um, one thing I noticed as I was watching is that Garth Algar, Wayne Campbell, and the boys, 
They're really supportive and kind of loving and positive with each other. All the time they'll make little jokes or have little realizations or like make little achievements or little breakthroughs in whatever silly skill they're doing. Um, and it's all high fives and like, sweet, all right, bro, all right, good job. Like, I don't know. It's just uh, really just kind of a fun, supportive environment, which uh, I wanted to know. One of my favorite jokes in the history of ever, um, of any comedy I've ever seen in my life, um, is when they get into the studio, they're doing a whole series where they're rehearsing a green screen thing where they're traveling from place to place. They're going to exotic locations, Mexico, Hawaii, Tahiti, and so on. And then eventually they end up in Delaware. Hi. I'm in Delaware. <laughs> Cracks me up every time. Um, if you were a child of the 90s or later and you never played street hockey or whatever game you were playing in the street and waited until a car was coming and then shouted, Car! And then as soon as the car drove by, everyone went back into the street and shouted, Game on! Um, if you didn't do that, I don't know what to fucking say to you because that was a staple of my childhood. It was like a, like a kid law. You had to fucking say that as you got out there. The corporate sponsorship scene is a fucking classic. You don't need me to talk about it. Um, we could talk about Foxy Lady. Again, you know it. You love it. It's amazing. Um, one of my favorite gadgets in the history of films that's not in a James Bond movie is the Mirthmobile's roof-mounted licorice rope dispenser. Little dome where a dome light would be, except it's got fucking rope licorice in it. Pull out what you want, then you spin a little doohickey and it cuts it off, and then you got fucking licorice. Totally impractical, but I'll be damned if I don't want fucking want some in my, in my car. I've never had backstage passes to anything in my life, but if I ever did, I would definitely behave like Wayne and Garth, Garth holding them out. Uh, backstage passes, backstage passes, backstage passes. We're somebody important. Don't fucking worry about it. Alice Cooper with a classic cameo. Um, I really, really, really want to buy an AMC Pacer every time I watch this movie. Did a little research. Um, as I, you know, in order to do this show, turns out the actual Mirthmobile from Wayne's World sold in 2017 for like $37,000. It was restored and all that. 37 grand for a fucking AMC Pacer used in Wayne's World. I'm going to be honest. I'm tempted to find that fucking movie. Robert Patrick stars as T-1000 in a little cameo. Uh, of course, there's an entire alternate ending sequence. There's an apocalypse, apocalypse ending, a Scooby-Doo ending, a mega happy ending. There's a, a Thelma and Louise ending. Maybe that's in Wayne's World too. I didn't see it in my version of this today. I don't fucking know. You let me know. That's Wayne's World. Captain's Film Institute. Uh, entry number 30, I guess. I got to go through and make the list. Here's Jimi Hendrix. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a good time. This is Nonsense, the show, episode 230. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, episode 30 of season 2. Can you fucking believe it? 
pretty fantastic, don't you think? Yeah, I thought so too. Um, I'm having a great time. I hope you are too. We're 48 minutes into the show. This show's gone a lot longer than I thought, and I'm totally, totally okay with that. Um, I've got one more big story for you. We're going to save some van plan stuff for next week. Uh, Uh, Last blockbuster we'll save for next week. Richard Cheese, sorry, don't have time for you. Tiny houses, don't have time for you. Our forks illegal in Canada, don't have time for you. I'm very, very sorry. Going to go ahead and check those off the list as well. Um, if any of those stories catch your attention, send me an email, beardandbonesgmail.com or beardandbones on the Instagram. Let me know what you think of nonsense the show. Leave a review while you're at it. And uh, if any of those stories are something you want to hear about, send me a message. Let me know. And uh, if you ask me for it, I'll fucking do it. And now, the final story of Nonsense the Show, episode 230. Bad bitches and Navajo witches. Time for me to tell you about some Navajo witches. You guys ready for this? I decided we're going to add a little ghosts and goblins, a little mystery and myth story to our fucking entertainment this evening. Um, It was a weird show to put together this week, but I think it's come together very well. I'm enjoying it. Um, Here we go. Strap in, guys. This is a weird one. In the Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves as any animal they wish. The witch is called the Yi Naldaloshi. Naldaloshi. The Yi Naldaloshi by the Navajo, which translates to, with it, he goes on all fours. It is just one of several types of Navajo witches and is considered the most volatile and dangerous. Dang. For the Navajo people, witchcraft is just another part of their spirituality and one of the ways of their lives. As such, witchcraft has long been part of their culture, history, and traditions, which exist alongside humans and are not known as supernatural beings. The Navajo believe that there are places where the powers of both good and evil are present and that those powers can be harnessed for either purpose. Medicine men are known to utilize these powers to heal and aid members of their communities, while those who practice Navajo witchcraft seek to direct the spiritual forces to cause harm or misfortune to others. And as we go along, you'll find a lot of similarities between these witch stories and those witch stories of other cultures, most notably Salem, uh, back in, what was that, the 1600s? Um, early 1700s, whenever the fuck the, the Salem witch trials were, um, which is another story we, we definitely need to do because Giles Harvey has a hell of a fucking to- uh, tale to tell. <gasps> Throat got a little dry. Stand by a sip of rum for the working man. Ooh. I love when a show flies by and I feel like it, it's gone in a blink. Um, <clears throat> okay, back to the story. This type of Navajo witchcraft is known as the witchery way, which uses human corpses in various ways, such as tools from the bones and concoctions that are used to curse, harm, or kill intended victims. The knowledge of these powers is passed down from the elders from generation to generation. The Navajo, of course, are part of a larger culture area that also includes the Pueblo people, the Apache, the Hopi, the Ute, and other groups that also have their own versions of the skinwalker myth. But each one includes a malevolent witch capable of transforming itself into an animal. So across the entire geographic region and the entire cultural region with with these several different tribes with their own unique histories and cultures and religions, 
Um, there are some similarities between the Skinwalker myths. It's worth noting. It stands out for a reason. Among these tribes, a number of stories and descriptions have been told throughout the years about the Skinwalkers. Sometimes, these witches evolved from living their lives as respected healers or spiritual guides, who later chose to use their powers for evil. Though they can be either male or female, they are more often male. They walk freely among the tribe during the day and secretly transform under cover of night which, as you can imagine, would cause much paranoia and consternation amongst the tribe. We don't know who it is. We know it's somebody here. During the daytime, they appear as if they're anybody else. But at nighttime, they transform and do their dastardly evil deeds. In order to become a skinwalker, he or she must be initiated by a secret society that requires the evilest of deeds. The killing of a close family member. Most often, a sibling. Once this task has been completed, the individual then acquires supernatural powers, which gives them the ability to shapeshift into animals. Most often, they are seen in the form of coyotes, wolves, foxes, cougars, dogs, and bears. But they can take the shape of any animal they choose. They then wear the skins of the animals they transform into, hence the name Skinwalker. Sometimes, they also wore animal skulls or antlers atop their heads, which brought them more power. They chose what animal they wanted to turn into depending on the abilities needed for a particular task, such as speed, strength, endurance, stealth, claws, teeth, etc. They may transform again if trying to escape from pursuers, so they could transform into multiple animals in a short period of time, which of course only makes them more and more dangerous. Because of this, the Navajo consider it taboo for its members to wear the pelt of any predatory animal. However, sheepskin, leather, and buckskin are acceptable. So as long as it's not a predatory, dangerous animal, you can wear its skin. Otherwise, it is verboten. The skinwalkers are, uh, are also able to take possession of the bodies of human victims if a person locks eyes with them. That's going to be significant as we get a little further in into how you identify a skinwalker. So remember, if a person locks eyes with them, they can take possession of their body. After taking control, the witch can make the victims do and say things that they wouldn't otherwise, uh, which, of course, again, is very much like the Salem witch trials. You can see how the hysteria and the paranoia would take over when these rumors and these stories start to spread. Once they were shapeshifted, one way that others could tell that they were not a real animal is that their eyes are, are very, very different from those of an animal. Uh, instead, their eyes are very human, and when lights are shined on them, they turn bright red. So this is an age before flashlights. You gotta torture a campfire, that's your best bet. Locking eyes with them is sure to, to put you under their, under their control. So identifying them puts you at a very, very great deal of risk, which again, helps you explain the fear and the power that these beings would have and these tales would have. Alternate, uh, alternatively, when they're in human form, their eyes tend to look a bit more like animals. The evil society of the witches gather in dark caves or secluded places for several purposes. To initiate new members, plot their activities, harm people from a distance with black magic, and of course to perform their dark ceremonial rites. These ceremonies are similar to other tribal affairs, including dancing, feasts, rituals, sand painting, uh, but they were of course corrupted with dark connotations. 
The evildoers are also said to engage in necrophilia with female corpses, commit cannibalism, incest, and even grave grave robberies. So they're doing the most despicable, dastardly, and evil of acts in order to gain more power and, and commence their evil spells. During these gatherings, the skinwalkers are known to shapeshift into their animal forms or go about naked, wearing only beaded jewelry and ceremonial paint. The leader of the skinwalkers is usually an old man who is very powerful and long-lived skinwalker. Skinwalkers also have other powers, including reading others' minds, controlling their thoughts and behavior, causing disease and illness, destroying property, and even death. Those who have talked of their encounters with these evil beings describe a number of ways to know if a skinwalker is near. They make sounds around homes, such as knocking on windows, banging on walls, and scraping noises on the roof. On some occasions, they have been spied peering through windows. More often, they appear in front of vehicles in hopes of causing a serious accident. It is said that in addition to being able to shapeshift, the skinwalker is also able to control the creatures of the night, such as wolves, owls, and to make them do its bidding. Some are able to call up the spirits of the dead and reanimate the corpses to attack their enemies. Because of this, the Navajo rarely ventured out alone after dark. Incredibly powerful, terrifying beings. Its supernatural powers are uncanny, as they are said to run faster than a car and have the ability to jump high cliffs. They are extremely fast, agile, impossible to catch, and leave tracks that are larger than those of any known animal. When they have been seen, they have been described as not quite human and not fully animal. They are usually naked, but some have reported seeing the creature wearing tattered shirts or jeans, similar to a werewolf. The skinwalker kills out of greed, anger, envy, spite, or revenge. It also robs graves for personal wealth and to collect much-needed ingredients for use in black magic. These witches live on the unexpired lives of their victims, and they must continually kill to avoid perishing themselves. Skinwalkers and other witches have long been blamed for all manner of unexpected struggles and tragedies throughout the years, including sickness, drought, poor crops, and sudden deaths. Even smaller or individual problems such as windstorms during dances, alienation of affection by mates, the death of livestock, and reversal of fortune were often believed to be the work of a witch. So again, another parallel to the Salem witch trials where all of these random, normal kind of hardships that happen in life, they can always be blamed back onto a witch. Helps alleviate people of blame, helps give a common explanation and an easy explanation for things that lets people avoid taking responsibility themselves. Unfortunately, as with Salem, all of these uh, superstitions, myths, and stories led to a witch purge. This was all most apparent when the Navajo Witch Purge of 1878, which initially evolved from a cultural response to so many people moving across and onto their lands. After a series of wars with the U.S. Army, the Navajo were expelled from their land and forced to move to the Bosque Redondo at Fort Sumner in New Mexico, um, in, in what is known as the Long Walk of the Navajo in 1864. There, the people suffered from bad water, failed failed crops, illness, and death, reducing their numbers dramatically. 
After four years, the government finally admitted they had made a mistake and the Navajo were allowed to return to their homeland in the Four Corners area. During these years, many of the tribe's members were said to have turned to shape-shifting to escape the terrible conditions they were facing. In the meantime, the rest of the tribe were convinced that their gods had deserted them. This is an incredibly dire time for the entire tribe, for all of their people. Some turned to evil means, some just believed the gods had given up and deserted them. Easy to see how these rumors and these stories would, would spread even further. Once the people had finally returned to their homeland, though, their conditions improved. But the dreaded skinwalkers, for whom they blamed their years on the bleak reservation, were still among them. Accusations of witchcraft and the hunting of the skinwalkers began. When someone found a collection of witch artifacts wrapped in a copy of the Treaty of 1868, the tribal members unleashed deadly consequences. The Navajo Witch Purge occurred in 1878, in which 40 Navajo suspected witches were killed in order to restore harmony and balance for the tribe. Today, most tales of the sightings of these witches do not include death or injury, but rather are more trickster-like. Numerous people have told stories of swift animals running alongside their vehicles, matching their speed. After a short period, however, they run off into the wilderness. Along the way, these animals sometimes turn into a man, who sometimes bangs on the hood to scare the driver. Another story tells of a man who was making repairs on an old ranch home when he began to hear loud laughter coming from the nearby sheep pens. Thinking he was alone, he went to investigate, and found all of the sheep but one huddled in one corner of the pen. However, there was a lone ram separated from the group that was standing upright and laughing in a very human manner. After the man locks eyes with the ram, he sees that his eyes are not that of an animal, but very like a human's. The animal then casually walks away on all four legs. Some say they have seen them running through the night, sometimes turning into a fiery ball, leaving streaks of color behind them. Others have seen an angry-looking humanoid figures looking down on them from cliffs, mountains, and masons. In the 1980s, one of the most notable events occurred when a family was driving through the Navajo Reservation. As they slowed to make a sharp curve, something jumped from the ditch. It was described as black, hairy, and wore a shirt and pants. A few days after this event, at their home in Flagstaff, Arizona, the family was awakened to the sounds of loud drumming and chanting. Outside their home were three dark forms of men outside their fence. However, these shadowy figures, uh, these shadowy creatures were seemingly unable to climb or cross the fence and soon grew tired of their games and left. These events have, have occurred in the Four Corners area of New Mexico, or correction, Four Corners area of southwestern Colorado, southeastern Utah, northeastern Arizona, and northwest New Mexico. So the Four Corners area where these four states meet in one uniform uh, 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 point um, is known to be kind of uh, the, the breeding ground of these myths, these myths and these legends of these incredible creatures. In the 1990s, a ranch in northeastern Utah, far, far away from the Navajo Reservation, became the partial focus of the Skinwalkers. Called the Sherman Ranch, the Skinwalker Ranch, and the UFO Ranch, the place has a history of UFOs, aliens, cattle mutilations, 
and even crop circles. Located near the Ute Indian Reservation, these people have long thought that the Navajo put a curse on their tribe in retribution for many perceived transgressions, and since then, the skinwalkers have plagued the Ute people and their lands. Witchcraft, of course, represents the antithesis of Navajo cultural values, and it is not tolerated in their society. They work to avoid it, prevent it, and cure it in their daily behaviors. However, when it exists, their laws have always said very clearly that when a person becomes a witch, they have forfeited their humanity and their right to exist. So they should be killed. However, skinwalkers are notoriously hard to kill and attempts are usually unsuccessful. Trying to kill one will often result in the witch seeking revenge. Successful killing generally requires the assistance of a powerful shaman who knows spells and rituals that can turn the skinwalker's evil back upon itself. Another alternative is to shoot the creature with bullets that have been dipped into white ash. However, this shot must hit the witch in the neck or the head. So, of course, these creatures are incredibly difficult to kill. It's incredibly dangerous to even attempt it, which makes them all the more fearsome. Traditionally, the Navajo will not speak with outsiders about these creatures for fear of retribution by the skinwalkers. For that matter, it is a taboo subject amongst the natives themselves. According to Dr. Adrian Keene, the Native American academic writer and activist, these are not things that need or should be discussed by outsiders. At all. I'm sorry if that seems unfair, but that's how our cultures survive. Good Lord, huh? What do you think about that? That's the story of the Navajo Skinwalkers, the witches of the Southwestern world. Let's let Molly Hatchet do their thing for a minute, then we'll close this show out, end things for the week, and get ourselves set off for another beautiful week of nonsense. Here we go, flirting with disaster. gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages thank you so much for tuning in to nonsense the show this week for episode 230 bad bitches 
and Navajo witches. As always, my name is Captain Nick. I am so grateful for your patronage. I am so grateful for your time. Check out our sponsors. Check out my Patreon. Support the show. Tell your friends. Leave a review. Share on social media. All of that helps me more than you know. Thank you so much. I love you so much. I'll see you next week. Goodbye.
Nothing like a warm fire and a super soaker of fine cognac.